Hey, dear saints, you're listening to Preaching Christ Crucified on Double-Edged Sword. Sermons from Pastor Kilgo, preached at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We pray that as you hear God's word, you would be strengthened in faith and love and rejoice in the joy of the Lord's promises and kindness. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, you may not know this, but God's word has enemies. This is what Jesus is addressing. He's also addressing some questions that kind of linger for us and some questions that the disciples have. Why are some saved and not others? Why isn't all of Lawrence gathered here Today, or gathered in some church somewhere? Why are there those who are part of our fellowship who aren't here? Why do we have family that's fallen away? And to the disciples questioning, why is it that here is Jesus and he's preaching and he's teaching and he's performing these miracles And not everybody is following him. Not everybody is clinging to his words. Not everybody is trusting in him. Because God's word has enemies. That's what Jesus teaches us about in the parable of the sower. He gives us these four types of soil in which the Lord's word is planted by the Lord himself. And we shouldn't look past that, that Jesus is the one who's sowing his word, and it's not always successful. First, there's the path, where Jesus scatters the seed, and it falls in the path, and he gets trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air come in and devour it, and Jesus says that these are those who hear the word, but then the devil comes, the bird, and steals away the seed, God's word, from their hearts, so that they would not believe and be saved. This is, in fact, the motivation for all of the work of the devil. To fight against the Lord's word for this express purpose. That he would steal away, along with that word, our salvation and our faith. Now, it's a little bit more complicated, though, how he does this. You see glimpses of this throughout the scriptures. You see him fighting against the Lord's word against Adam and Eve. You see him fighting against the Lord's word, against Jesus himself, when he's uh, being tempted in the wilderness. One of the chief ways, and we see this in both of those, that the devil fights against the Lord's word, that he seeks to steal it away, is to simply get us to not believe it. To fight against what the Lord's word is in its very nature. This is where we get into what's called the attributes of Scripture. There's seven classically, that we describe the scriptures with. What makes the Bible, what makes God's word different from every other word? Why is it, like we talked about at the Transfiguration, that God's word is the brightest shining light? Why isn't it just another history book? Why isn't it just another book of rules or a book of morals? What makes it different? 
Well, the first and foremost is that it's inspired. This is the chief attribute of Scripture, that God's Word is breathed out by God Himself. That it is God-spirited. So that it's not only coming out of God's mouth, but coming along with that Word, coming out of His mouth, is His own Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to redeem us, to create in us clean hearts, to give us faith and sustain that faith. So first and foremost, the devil fights against that to get us to believe that it's just the words of men. And then from that flow all the other attributes. You have, for example, uh, that God's word is infallible and inerrant. These usually go together. Sometimes this is called the perfection of Scripture. And there are kind of two sides of the same coin. One describes the author, one describes the text. God's word doesn't have any mistakes, and God's word cannot have mistakes. God's word doesn't have any mistakes because God doesn't lie to us. And mistakes in the scriptures would be just that, God lying to us. And they can't have mistakes because God's the author. And God can't lie. That's actually one of his, his own attributes, is that God is true. You remember this with Jesus himself. I am the way and the truth and the life. And so the devil fights against this by getting us to believe that some parts of the Bible, maybe most of it, maybe 99% of it is, is true, but there are these little errors sprinkled in there. But as Jesus reminds us, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, or as a friend of mine once said, um, the thing that is more dangerous than giving somebody a bottle of liquid Drano to drink is baking that liquid Drano into cookies. Still just as poisonous but it doesn't look as dangerous. The next one is that the scriptures are clear. This has a great fun word that everybody should know, and that is that the scriptures are perspicuous. <laughs> uh, that just means clear. It's a fancy word for clear. But this means that we can understand what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, that the Holy Spirit doesn't talk like Yoda, for example. You can imagine if the scriptures were written like Yoda talked, then the scriptures would be the opposite of clear. You would never know whether you were coming or going or what in the world the Holy Spirit was talking about. But as it is, the Holy Spirit uses the rules of language and grammar to communicate with us. And there are some things that are difficult, but they are still clear, especially in light of the rest of the scriptures. But the devil will come along and tempt us to believe that these things are just obscure, that we can't understand them, and so we shouldn't even bother with them. Or, because they're obscure and they're not clear, we can just make up all sorts of different opinions about them, and they're all, they're all equal. We also have that the scriptures are efficacious, that they're powerful. This is what we talked about a lot, that, that when God speaks, his words do stuff. They create everything in the beginning. They forgive sins. They part water. They baptize they feed, they absolve. And here the devil simply tries to get us to believe that God's words are like any other words. They can't actually do anything when they speak. I can't tell the lights to turn on by speaking unless we have some sort of device that'll let me do that. And even there, it's not me, it's the device that's doing it. And then the last two we have are that the scriptures are sufficient and that they're authoritative. That we have everything we need for doctrine and for life, for eternity, given to us in the scriptures, we don't need the scriptures and. To which the devil will tempt us to believe we need the and, and the and always ends up overpowering and overriding the scriptures when that happens. 
and that they're authoritative. The scriptures do get to tell us what to do and what not to do. God is the one who has created all things. God is the one who has created us. He's redeemed us. He's made, our, he's made his dwelling among us. He, therefore, has the right and the duty to instruct us. Now, a general principle that we should take with this, the devil being an enemy of God's word and fighting against these attributes of the scriptures, is that if the devil wants it for us, we should flee from it. And if the devil doesn't want us to have something, we should desire it all the more. And the chief thing the devil does not want us to have is faith in what God says to us, which means that we should embrace when God speaks to us in the scriptures all that much more. Now, the remedy to this, the remedy that fights against this enemy of God's word, of the devil, is being in the scriptures so that we would learn to rejoice and trust in God's word more than any other voices, more than any other words in creation. Those are the chief words, and everything has to be interpreted through them. And this is especially done for us in worship. Then you get to the rocks. This is the world and the flesh, but they're coming to us in a particular way. They're, this is the world and the, and the flesh trying to drive us to despair. These are enemies of God, and so they try and drive us into this ditch where we, we despair of everything that's going on around us. We allow suffering and trial and persecution to drive us not deeper into God's word, but away from God's word. We allow these things to drive us away from the trust and promises that Christ has given to us. Now, part of this is that we have this temptation to believe that our lives are going to be easier as Christians than they were otherwise. And we should listen to what Jesus teaches us on that. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. You will have trouble. It's not going to be easier being a Christian. It's harder being a Christian. You actually have to live according to a particular set of standards. You have to live a life of faith, and you have to live that in opposition to the enemies that come about because of it. Now, the example of this would be if, if you're in a plane and the, the flight attendant comes up and they give you this parachute as you're, as you're flying along, and they say, hey, take this parachute. It's going to make your, your flight better. And then like every time it, it bumps, you've got this big giant bag sitting on your lap and you don't know what to do with it. It doesn't fit in the overhead compartment. It doesn't fit under the, under the seat. And eventually you just toss the thing away because it's not making your flight any better. It's not making it easier. It's making it more annoying. It's making it harder. But that's not what the parachute's for. The parachute is there to save you when the plane goes down. So if the flight attendant came up and said something different to you, if they said, here's a parachute, the plane's going down, and this is going to save you, you are not letting go of that bag. Because you know that therein is your salvation. Therein is everything that you need, and you, you trust this. That's what God's word is. It is a parachute in the plane of this creation that is going to crash, and it is what is going to bring you into the eternal salvation. It's not there to make your life better in the sense of more enjoyable, although there is joy that comes from these things on the backside. 
It is there to save you. Now, the reason why we struggle with this is that we, we've, we've embraced the idea that, that suffering and, and, uh, and persecution and trials, that these are bad things, fundamentally. We've gone into this of like, why, why do I suffer? And we think that, that these things are, are just intrinsically bad. We shouldn't deal with this. To which we should simply just turn and look at the cross of Christ and remember that he himself bears this and considers it a good thing. And that we are told that we are going to be conformed into the image of Christ. That we are, we are told to rejoice in our sufferings. But we have to do that through the lens of Jesus' own cross. We have to learn to view our sufferings through Jesus' own sufferings. And then, and only then, do we not consider these things to be evil, but beneficial for us. Now, the ultimate danger that Jesus points to in the, uh, in the seed that's on the rocks is that they, they don't have moisture. In Matthew, uh, they don't have root to get the moisture. So this, then, is what the remedy is, that we would be in the scriptures specifically so that we would get deep roots, so that we would be like the one described in Psalm 1, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. The roots go down, they suck up the water so that the tree can live. That is what the scriptures are doing for us. But we have to have deep roots. Otherwise, when the sun comes out, when suffering comes out, we will wither and die. And so we fight against this enemy by being in the scriptures to be well fed. And then we get the weeds. This too is the world and our flesh, but it's driving us in the opposite direction. Instead of driving us into despair, it's driving us into complacency. It's driving us into the cares and the pleasures of life. Caring more about all of those things than we do about God's word. The example of this, I think we've used this before, to see how this sits with all of us, is if we set up a booth right outside the church, and as people are coming in, you had an option. Either you could go to the booth and you could receive $1,000 and go your way, or you could come into the church and receive the gifts of the church. And which do you pick? And at what level does that money get to where you start really considering it? The other example of this, it's, it's kind of ironic that we have this text today, would be the Super Bowl itself. That there are countless people who will spend hours upon hours upon hours, not just watching the Super Bowl, but prepping for it. People who have started yesterday prepping for all of this and will therefore neglect the hearing of the scriptures, neglect rejoicing in God's word because of those cares and pleasures of life. So God be praised that you are here. Now, the remedy to this is, you might have guessed, being in the scriptures. Specifically, though, to mortify our flesh and to reorient our desires, our will, so that it match up with God's. And this is especially in our devotions. There is a fourth soil, and we have to be careful with this one. Because there is a temptation to think that if you are one of these other soils, then you are not the fourth soil. You are not the good soil. That the good soil is a perfect soil. 
that the good soil is the soil that doesn't need any tilling or any work or anything like that, which just ask a farmer and they will tell you that that is not true. That's not what good soil looks like. But also ask a farmer about how often they have rocks and weeds and all this other stuff in their fields. It's always there. And the same is true for us. Jesus says the good soil is that which receives the word of God in an honest and good heart. It's not those who are perfect. It's not, as Jesus says, those who are well. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who already have crops growing don't need the seed to be planted. Instead, they are those who understand who they are, an honest heart. They are those who, when they hear these previous three soils, they hear about the path and the devil coming to steal away God's word, and it says, that's me. I have, I have let the devil convince me that there are things in the scriptures that are not true. I've not let the scriptures have their way with my mind and my heart. We hear the, parab the, the section about uh, the, the rocks, and we say, that's me. I have, I have let tribulation and persecution drive me away from instead of to God's mercy. And we hear about the weeds and we say, that's me. I've let the cares and pleasures of this life press me away from God's word. That is an honest heart. And that is a heart that recognizes that it needs to be fixed and it needs to be forgiven. And that's precisely what God's word is doing. That's what makes for a good heart. This is what Solomon prays for. A hearing heart. And this is what is so great about God's word. This word that is inspired and inerrant and infallible and clear and powerful and sufficient and authoritative, it comes along and it fights against all of its own enemies. It fights against the devil and it fights against the rocks and it fights against the weeds. And it casts the devil out. It removes the rocks out of the field it cuts down the weeds, and it plants, and it waters, and it grows. And it produces, then, an eighth attribute. This is a made-up one. And that is that God's word is awesome. This is, this is the soil that receives God's word in joy. Because God's word comes along... And it does all the things that we want it to do, all the things that we need it to do. It cleanses. As we pray, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Or as Jesus has promised, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. It restores us. Where he promises in Ezekiel that I will take from you your heart of stone and give to you a heart of flesh. And it sanctifies us. As we pray in the Psalter, sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. And it forgives us. And it raises us. It does everything. And it makes you, then, the good soil. You, dear saints, and you need to hear this very clearly, are the good soil. 
That's why you're here today. That you are receiving the word of God, the seed, in an honest and good heart. And it is, according to his promise, therefore bearing up abundant fruit. It does not return to him void. It accomplishes that for which he purposes it. And that is especially your forgiveness and your salvation and your eternity. It is especially your dwelling with him and with one another. That's why it's awesome. And that's why with God's word, if we have God's word, we have everything. In the name of Jesus, amen. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to Preaching Christ Crucified on Double-Edged Sword, sermons by Pastor Kilgo at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We'd like to invite you to join us for church, Sundays at 10 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. We also have Bible study at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings and at other times throughout the week. Please visit our website at redeemer-lawrence.org for more information. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time.